The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. I've begun with all the facts I knew about my great-grandfather, Harry Kane. When we first meet Harry at the very beginning of the book, when we know nothing of his history, all we know is that he is suffering from something we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. But he has also apparently done something wrong, so he's been committed against his will into a, a very tough asylum. So there was a hint of why Harry might have left, but as far as I was concerned, that wasn't hint enough. I was in psychoanalysis for 21 and a half years. The hospital that I was in, Freerne Hospital, was an iconic asylum. And when it was opened in 1851, it was the biggest and most advanced mental hospital in Europe at the time. The book tells the story of the first decade of what was a very, very turbulent therapeutic relationship. So I describe this rise and decline of the therapeutic community movement in this country, and it's a really fascinating story. One of the pleasures of my job is when books suddenly start talking to each other. This might seem like a strange statement, but if you bear with me for the next 30 minutes, I hope you'll see what I mean. It happened with the two books we're featuring this week, even though they would seem on the surface to have very little in common. Patrick Gale's A Place Called Winter is a novel of farming in Canada in the years after the First World War. It was inspired by mystery from his own family history, which he'll tell us about in a minute. Barbara Taylor's The Last Asylum is subtitled A Memoir of Madness in Our Times. It's based on an account of her own history as one of the last inmates of England's largest psychiatric institution, which is now Luxury Flats. It's in North London. Welcome to both of you. I'm going to ask each of you to talk for five or six minutes about your individual books, and then we'll talk together about the issues raised. Patrick, let's start with A Place Called Winter. I described it as a cross between Brokeback Mountain and The Little House on the Prairie, but actually it starts in England. So if somebody reading the first section of this would wonder what on earth I was talking about. I think so, and it starts a bit like a thriller and then turns into something like a parody of an E.M. Forster novel that gets much calmer and, and kinder. So this is where your family come into it? Absolutely. I've begun with all the facts I knew about my great-grandfather, Harry Kane, who, with his brother, married into this enormous family from West London. I think there were 12 children in all. So two brothers married two sisters and all went well, and Harry and his wife had a little girl, my grandmother, And then Harry suddenly up sticks and moved to Canada on his own to be a homesteader. Because in those days we were offering 160 acres free of charge if you could farm it and fence it and live on it within three years. And he took up this offer and his wife and child did not go with him. So there's this big glaring mystery about... Why? He was sort of expunged from the record. He was. My grandmother did a lot of my raising. I spent many, many months of my childhood living with her, and she told me wonderful stories, incessant stories about her colourful aunts and her mother. Never mentioned her father. And as a child, I accepted this. I didn't think it was in any way odd. And it was only a lot, lot later, about 10 years ago, I inherited a fragment of memoir which she had begun to write, little inked memoir. And in that, she 
sketched out the very sad story of Harry and Winifred's marriage, where it became clear that Winifred was actually in love with another man who she hadn't been allowed to marry because he was trade. So there was a hint of why Harry might have left, but as far as I was concerned, that wasn't hint enough because he was a very rich man, a man of leisure. He'd never worked in his life. And once I looked at the real tough reality of being a homesteader in Canada in the 1900s, I realised it was nothing short of hard labour. And for him to have done that, there must have been something a lot more to make him leave. And I so think. as a gay writer, you obviously jumped <laughs> to one particular <laughs> Naturally, conclusion. I assumed he had a secret gay life in which he'd been caught out. And uh, even if the real life Harry wasn't like that, I think it makes sense within the facts I was given. I tried to come up with an emotionally satisfying story that would cause the known facts to wobble a little, but wouldn't actually knock them down. And he gets people trafficked, basically, doesn't he, by this character who is not coincidentally, presumably called Trolls. Yes, Trolls, Trolls Monk is a typical parasite on the colonial movement. He, he is not a homesteader himself. He enables homesteading. There were a lot of rich young men going out from England at this period who weren't very serious about homesteading. They were exploiting the system basically to go and hunt and shoot and fish and have a wonderful time. And they were nicknamed, to this day, they are spoken of with scorn by Canadians as remittance men because they lived off handouts from home. And Harry was not a remittance man, but I imagine him falling in with them on the boat because he naturally would have travelled out first class. And he... he, he lands in a really quite a hard place, sort of working his way into to some sort he of knowledge does. of the land. Well, one of the fragments of, of truth I had about Harry was that when he went out there, he had the sense um, not to go straight into homesteading, but to spend a year learning how to farm. So he basically went from being a young man about Mayfair to being a hired hand on a farm. So he would have been a little less than a servant and doing hard manual labour from the word go in very harsh conditions. So I imagine this with a Scandinavian background because I know he went to Moose Jaw and at that stage Moose Jaw had a fair number of Norwegians and Danes and Swedes living around there. So he goes to work for a very, very tough Swedish family. And yeah, they, they're tough on the surface but after a long winter alone with them reading lots of good books and trading books, they, they become humanised to him. And through them, he is further united with this dangerous man, Trolls, who is a cousin by marriage. And Trolls appears to be helping Harry, but actually has a long-term game in which Harry is just a helpless pawn. And there's a love story at the heart of it, isn't there? He finds his soulmate. He does. This is a book about a man discovering who he really is. And he does that through the course of a series of friendships, sexless friendships with women, beginning with his wife going on through one of the, the girls on the farm and ending up with his neighbour's wife out in, in the middle of nowhere in a place called Winter. And he falls in love with her brother. And it is actually called Winter, that there is a place it's called It's a Winter. real place. I say it. It was a real place. It's now a ghost town. It had a very short history, beginning with the establishment of the Prairie Railway Lines, where the places were named arbitrarily, alphabetically. So Winter comes after Unity and Vera. And Winter was simply Mr. Winter, who was an engineer on the line. And I imagine Unity and Vera were his daughters. Now, Barbara, you might know something about this, because by total coincidence, you come from the very area in which the novel is set. Well, I don't come from a ghost town, but no, <laughs> no. But, but I do come from uh, sort of just down the road. An hour and a half down the road. Yes, yeah. yes. Now, the third strand in this novel, which we haven't talked on at all, it's not just the geographical coincidence that has made me bring you together, but is the fact that... Harry's peace of mind is very, very hard won and it involves 
going into a psychiatric institution, yes. being committed. When we first meet Harry at the very beginning of the book, when we know nothing of his history, all we know is that he is suffering from something we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. He has lost big chunks of his memory and is in a very, very bad state. But he has also apparently done something wrong. So he's been committed against his will into a, a very tough asylum from which he is then rescued to a slightly more understanding and experimental psychiatric clinic, I suppose you could call it. So would you just read a little bit of his introduction to it? The attendants had come for him as usual after breakfast, and he had assumed that the endless, soul-eroding process of pacifying him by water treatments was to continue. He marginally preferred the cold wrap to the continuous bath, if only because it was administered in a smaller room where he had precious peace and quiet, provided he didn't begin to shout out in a panic. If anything, though, it was even more constraining than the bath, involving, as it did, being tightly wrapped in a sheet dipped in cold water, around which were wound two more sheets, a rubber mat, and then a blanket, before he was left secured to a wire bed frame, sometimes for three hours, quietly dripping, first with water, then with sweat. Today, however, he wasn't to have a treatment. You're going on a journey, one of them told him. Young Mr. Ormshaw has picked you to help with his research, so we need you nice and quiet. They rolled up his sleeve and administered an injection that was clearly a powerful sedative, for by the time they had given him socks to wear and handed him back his old boots and overcoat, he was so foggy in the head that he couldn't have spoken any of the questions that crowded his mind. His little cabin had a shaded terrace on one side of it. It was one of several such, clearly built from identical kits, arranged in a half-circle before a large, log-framed house that resembled some fanciful idea of a Tyrillian chalet, and onto whose veranda he half-expected chorus girls to emerge in dirndles, holding hoops of paper flowers and singing of love and springtime. For it was springtime which was presumably why the river was so mightily in spate. The greening woods behind him were full of birdsong, and sitting on his terrace, he watched birds, chipmunks and squirrels, darting back and forth on the grass, going about the exhausting spring business of putting on fat and finding a mate. He had no sense of where he was or how far he and the silent attendant with him had travelled. Being expected to board a train had stirred up in him such violent misgivings that they had been obliged to administer a second dose of the sedative, so he had slept like a drunkard for much of the journey. The latter part of the voyage, by road, was undertaken in darkness. All he had registered as he tumbled into a bed whose linen had been chilled by sharp mountain air was relief that his bed was on its own, and that he could hear only his own sighs and breathing, not the shouts and weeping of others. A gong sounded from the main house. Harry flinched, prepared for the idyll to be broken by orderlies or nurses, but glanced across and saw only a simply uniformed maid standing by an open door. Noticing him, she raised a hand in greeting, tapped the gong a few more times, as though for his benefit, then slipped inside again. 
The door of the next cabin along opened, and there emerged a slender blonde woman wearing respectable but antique clothes. Good morning, she said in a high voice, and he rose to meet her. As she offered him a small, lace-fringed hand, he saw she was considerably older than her figure suggested. How do you do? he said. Are you going to breakfast? I, I imagine so. You must be hungry after your journey, she said. She had one of those little girl voices, which so often seemed to mask an aggressive nature. We heard you arrive, but were under strict instructions to leave you in peace. I'm Mabel. We use no surnames or titles here. The good doctor is Quakerish in his leanings. She laughed skittishly. I'm Harry, he told her. Delighted, Harry. Let me take you to breakfast. Is this a hospital? he began, and she laughed again. Another forbidden word. You're quite the rebel, I can see. It's a community, a therapeutic community. Barbara, a therapeutic community. This is a term you're obviously very familiar with. <laughs> yes, I read Patrick's book um, with enormous uh, pleasure and interest because to see a therapeutic community sort of located in the middle of the Canadian prairies was fascinating to me. I, in my book, I describe I had direct experience of the therapeutic community system in Britain in the uh, late 1980s when I was, I was a, a day patient in a therapeutic community in Finsbury in London, Pine Street Day Centre. And my book um, combines my personal history with the story of the changes in mental health care over the last sort of 50 years. And so I describe the sort of rise and decline of the therapeutic community movement in this country and it's a it's a really fascinating story. The Last Asylum is the title of your book and which was The Last Asylum? Oh I don't know which was literally The Last Asylum I mean in the sense that it's about the death of the asylum system and um, the hospital that I was in, Freern Hospital, was an iconic asylum and when it was opened in 1851 and it became known as the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. It was the biggest and most advanced mental hospital in Europe at the time and acquired then, a, um, sadly, a reputation for being a very, very sinister institution. Some people have told me, I don't know whether it's true, but, you know, the booby hatch, that phrase, it relates to, to Freer and Hospital, Colney Hatch Hospital, and certainly people in the area used to threaten children, if you misbehave, you go down the hatch, that is, to the hospital. It's been described by um, Will Self, among others. In his novel Umbrella, he describes the, this huge central corridor as the north circular of the soul, I think. Yes, yes, it's a nice phrasing. So, so there you were. You were, you were a young academic with a, an award-winning book published, and suddenly you find yourself adrift, really. It predates you being admitted to Free and Barnet, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, I, it, it wasn't so sudden. Uh, from my late 20s onwards, life became increasingly difficult for me. And I had a couple of, now I recognize as breakdowns, and went into psychoanalysis in 1982. I was in psychoanalysis for 21 and a half years. And um, the book tells the story of the first decade of what was a very, very turbulent therapeutic relationship and how in the course of that first decade that I ended up inside the mental health system in Freer and in day institutions, 
But I, I should also say that I attribute my recovery um, to the psychoanalysis. You have this well. figure called V, who's your, who's your analyst. And you, you're incredibly candid about the depths to which you sank. I mean, the conversations with him are recorded in italics, interspersing other bits of text. And you have these excruciating encounters. Yes, it was very, very painful. And I think... Um, People have a lot of illusions about what the psychoanalytic process is like. I think there's a notion of it being a sort of self-indulgent chatter about oneself. And, I mean, I also want to say that it isn't always as difficult as mine was. I was very, very unwell, and it um, was a very incredibly painful exploration of the sources of my misery, which I think, I think what I'm trying to show in the book is that what happens in psychoanalysis when someone is, and I use the language of madness and craziness in the book, that unwell is that the madness becomes a sort of shared madness and you hope that the clinician side of it is going to also remain sane enough to be able to get you through it and that was what happened to me. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. This is the biggest story in the world. We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people and this is a story about possibility. It's a story that's eluded us for decades. A topic which The Guardian is now throwing itself wholeheartedly into. I'd seen how we'd done it on other things. Climate change. So we're letting you in behind the scenes. Editorial meetings, bids for commissions. You'll hear what works as well as our mistakes. And along the way, you can judge how we do. Is there a new way to make the world care? The biggest story in the world on The Guardian. There is a bit of suspense there, isn't there? There were times when I thought, oh my goodness, is he, he's going to go off on holiday at a moment of crisis and you're just going to be completely stranded. Well, then you might have known that the author wouldn't have been there, probably. I mean, I, although I, it's true that other people have said to me, oh gosh, I, I kept thinking, are you going to make it through? And then I'd remember that you'd written the book and think <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit more about your experience in Frame Barnet. Well... I really wanted to give people a sort of insider view of an institution like this because it's so heavily mythologized and it did indeed. I mean, it was a terrifying place for people coming to visit me. Some of my visitors, by the time they had made their way along that corridor, which was indeed a third of a mile long and was a, um, it really did look like a vista from hell are so on and find their way into this enormous run-down ward which was which really had very little refurbishment since its Victorian opening and people would sometimes start to cry I mean they were very upset about it you know it was like looked like a sort of piece of a gothic nightmare 
I wanted to show what went on, the forms of communal life that develop in institutions like this, the friendships I formed. It was a very frightening place in many respects, but it also gave me a place of safety from myself, which was what I required, and a sense of being held inside a system which would not drop me, which was what I needed at the time. I don't mourn the closure of places like Freer and Hospital, but the book argues passionately that the function of asylum that they offered to people has been swept away with nothing effective put in its place. And the hostel that you were discharged to as a sort of halfway going back to normality, would that not serve the function? Um, that's not quite what happened. What happened, I, I was, when I was uh, not an inpatient in Freerin, I uh, this was over about a four-year period, I had three admissions to Freerin, and in between those, I was in two day institutions, the Whittington Day Hospital and Pine Street Day Centre, which was, they were both modelled on the therapeutic community model of care. But in addition, because I had lost my home, I then was placed in a hostel for women with mental disorders. And those four institutions, if you like, the hospital, the day institutions, the hostel, did provide a very effective net of support for me during that period. Now I'm going to bring Patrick back in here into this now because you talk about this sort of apparently very cheerful therapeutic community into which we just heard Harry being freed, but you're very ambivalent about it, aren't you? Well, the particular one I describe is ambivalent because I'm writing about the dawn of psychiatric care when the word barely existed and when there was tremendous scope for idealistic young doctors or older doctors who had got a whiff of the new theories coming from Vienna to experiment on living patients, really, and to try out methods. I mean, it seems to me, I've always been fascinated by psychiatry, partly because I have quite a, a history within my own family and among my friends. I've, I've visited a lot of hospitals over the years, not unlike the Freean. And it seems to me it's a very blunt instrument. I can completely appreciate the asylum aspect and the value of that. But it seems to me, too, that the history of psychiatry is one of very blunt experimentation and of, of doctors feeling their way, really, by trial and error. So, yes, ECT, for instance, which one of my siblings had for depression, clearly works. But I'm still not quite sure how it works. And when you look back through the history of what led to ECT, the treatment before that was malarial treatment in which patients would be willfully given malaria so as to induce a high fever which would bring on fits. I mean, that's typical of the, the very kind of clumsy science, really, that was brought to bear on these poor patients. So did it exist, the particular institution you write about? Not the one I write about, but it's based on similar institutions that were forming at the time. Largely, it has to be said, in Austria, not in, in Canada. I, that was sheer wish fulfilment. I, I was very keen to bring in the ideas of, of Edmund Carpenter as well as early psychiatric writings and um, it seemed a handy way to do it. There's one particular instance where it goes terribly wrong and it's to do with a sort of colonial mindset, to do with a First Nation inmate yes. called well, one, Little of, Bear. One, one of the nightmares of our incursion into certainly central Canada was our treatment of, of the First Nations tribes and an, an awful lot of those tribes people, especially their children, who we had forced into the residential schools to try to make them Christian, ended up in psychiatric care because they were so brutally robbed of their, of their own culture and their own language and given nothing really very meaningful in its place. 
And I think there's an interesting parallel between what happened there and what happened in Australia as well, where in both cases, when the great reforms of the psychiatric system came along in the late 70s, it was found, surprise, surprise, that the wards were full of long-term patients who weren't so much ill as just totally institutionalised and who came from these ethnic backgrounds. You have quite a few long-term, very long-term patients that you came up against, didn't you, and made friends with during your time at Freehan? I did, yes. I mean, it's fascinating when you think about Harry Kane finding himself Mm. in Patrick's novel in these institutions because, of course, people have a lot of notions about what sort of people crazy people are. And And indeed, um, what constitutes mental illness. Exactly. Which in Harry Kane's day included just being gay. That was a... Well, Well, the little bear is, it has a sort of an alternate persona who is female, which is perfectly legitimate within his... Within her own culture, she is a two spirits. She, he is a two spirits person. So she inhabits two genders at once and would have status, spiritual status for that. But Western medicine would regard this as a a disorder. But the parallel, I think, in terms of brutality is what happened a great deal in England at the turn of the century, where if, say, a housemaid was raped by her employer and became pregnant, she could, with the connivance of a, a local doctor, be certified as suffering from moral turpitude. And that was enough to have her incarcerated for life. And it was only when we tried to clear out these institutions, we found people like that. Maggie O'Farrell wrote a very moving novel about just this, about a, an old woman from an old Scottish hospital who was only in there because she was raped by her employer. Barbara, you, two souls, the idea of being two souls, you could say that's a psychotic state, couldn't you? I mean, it's a state of altered reality, as one might see it from a therapeutic point of view. Yes, I mean, you know, the amount of cultural baggage that definitions of, you know, the mental illness have at different times is enormous. And I think we shouldn't just think of this as the bad old days. I mean, you know, it's only very recently that homosexuality was no longer listed. It's only just been taken off the list. Well, exactly. Of diagnostic. Yes, yes. yes, The American Psychiatric Association, I think, only took it off in the 1980s. But also now we have the proliferation of a host of new so-called mental disorders, including oppositional disorder, that, you know, this is particularly in children, mm-hmm. naughtiness, you know, social anxiety disorder, being shy. So, I mean, we need to be very, very wary I think, I mean, you know, when, when, when Patrick says, talks about blunt instruments, I mean, the whole diagnostic system within psychiatry, it seems to me, is something that we need to look upon with deep and abiding scepticism. And uh, doesn't it strike you as well that it's, it's always like a, a dark echo of a need in society outside the asylum? So where there is anxiety about childcare, you will suddenly find a diagnosis like attention deficit disorder, which very handily seems to fit an anxiety in society at large. And I guarantee that in 30 years' time, that diagnosis will have gone away and there will no longer be drugs and we'll be appalled that we were drugging children for something which we now see as, as an illness. But Well, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right because I think we need to think carefully about the pressures that exist that are creating this proliferation of diagnoses because I think we need to think about how much is required of individuals in terms of making their way in life without the kind of supports that Western society has offered them in the past. So I think, you know, we might think it's just a dystopian vision to think of drugged up people going into work, having drugs Mm. so that they can continue to work and not become scroungers and skivers. But frankly, I think that's exactly what we're seeing happening now. Mm. 
um, your books sound perhaps grim, Barbara, but it isn't grim because it's full of really extraordinarily wonderful characters and wonderful farcical situations, mm. including your own situations. You're in this strange situation for a start of being in a big asylum and being allowed to go out every day to visit your analysts. Mm. You're not kept in. Nobody particularly notices where you are and when you go. I'm so glad that you found humour in it because I did intend quite often to make people join with me in some of the dark sort of humour of, of, of circumstance. And also that, of course, the people that I met, that I became friendly with, there was a time when I thought this was going to be my world forever. And it was such a richly populated world. And I really wanted to show that about the complexity and the fascination of the people that I got to know. I mean, I tell the story in particular of an extraordinary woman, this Armenian New Yorker, who I call Magda in the book, who was a scholar and a musician. And she had published a very successful book they had a little book corner in the nurses' uh, section of of the, of the ward where the, my book and her book and a book by the consultant psychiatrist all shelved together, you know. I tell the story of the breakfast club that we ran in the ward, you know, with the, with the resident alcoholic once he dried out, you know, creating these great feasts for us. And so, yes, it's a... It's a complex world with many, many different sorts of emotional registers. And one of them is that when the alcoholic dries out and leaves... The, the breakfast club, The yes. breakfast club it, disbands. It, sadly, It's sadly. sort of happy, a happy, sad. There are yes. lots of happy, sad moments yes, in it. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, I wonder if you would just finish by reading from the very end of the book, and it's the note of caution that I think has been sounding through this podcast. So to return to my question, what would happen to me were my difficulties of three decades ago to occur today. My main treatment of choice was a privately funded psychoanalysis, and this option is still open to anyone who can afford it, although the numbers doing so are apparently dwindling. But if I broke down in the course of my psychoanalysis, as I did then, would I receive the help I needed? There's a complicated answer to this question, and a very simple one. The complicated answer involves crisis teams, acute wards, recovery strategies, care plans, a constellation of services that operate fairly well in some parts of the country and much less well in others. Maybe I would be lucky. The simple answer relates to what I needed most. Asylum, a safe place to be, a stone mother to hold me for as long as I required it. This I would not get. Freern, the Day Hospital, Pine Street, all these and havens like them are gone. My hostel, I believe, is still there, along with many more like it. But my chances of being housed in such a place would be slim unless I could pay for it, and the fees would be high. But if I were poor, as most people with serious mental disorders are, or eventually become, then I would have to manage as best I could, and this at a time when governments everywhere are reducing welfare payments to the psychologically disabled. Would I make it? Possibly, especially if I managed to avoid involuntary detainment and treatment or long-term drugging, but it would be a tough call. People with or without mental disorders depend on other people to lead a livable life. We don't really need history to tell us this, but history shows what happens when we forget it. The mental health system I entered in the 1980s was deeply flawed, but at least it recognised needs 
for ongoing care, for asylum, for someone to rely upon when self-reliance is no option, that the present system pretends do not exist, offering in their stead individualist pieties and self-help prescriptions that are a mockery of people's sufferings. The story of the asylum age is not a happy one, but if the death of the asylum means the demise of effective and humane mental health care, then this will be more than a bad ending to the story. It will be a tragedy. On that somewhat sombre note, we end this podcast of Happy Coincidences. A Place Called Winter is published by Tinder Press and The Last Asylum is out in paperback in the UK from Penguin Now and has just been published in the US by Chicago University Press. You can find more literary discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud or on the Guardian Books website. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Thanks to Patrick Gale and Barbara Taylor. From me, Claire Armistead and our producer, Eva Krishak. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.